You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. B2B sales and marketing works to find the highest quality prospects, reach decision makers, and sell value. Operational excellence uses data and systems thinking to make changes that cause improvement and eliminate waste. My name is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. In the next 30 to 40 minutes, we're going to destroy the myth that these two groups conflict and show you how to bring both strategies together to create more wealth for your company and your customers. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. Today, I have a guest that I've been looking forward to for quite a while. My guest, Drew Locker, a management consultant par excellence, and I've been following Drew for quite a while. Drew, could you tell us about your background, introduce yourself, and, and how you got into what you're doing today? Thank you, Michael, and thank you for having me on your, your podcast. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak to your colleagues and constituents. So a little bit of background. Basically, I grew up in the 1980s in, in a corporate management development program at the General Electric Company. And it was there that I got introduced to what we called at the time world-class enterprise and quality management concepts. We were expected to apply those concepts in whatever management role that we had. I was with GE for seven years. I left in 1990, went back to school for organizational behavioral science. Up to that point, my background was in engineering, several engineering fields. At the same time, I went out and started working with different organizations and different industries, kind of see how these world-class and quality management concepts applied in, in different environments. And that's what I did throughout the 90s, working with smaller, typically smaller and medium-sized organizations. And that kind of grew into working with larger organizations by the end of that decade. So I've been working with all kinds of different industries over the last nearly 30 years on my own including healthcare, as well as manufacturing, financial service companies, even higher education. They're currently trying to apply these concepts to, to their operations. I've been kind of doing that for 29 years and wrote a few books, which kind of gets you some notoriety, as you know, uh, in the field, mainly focusing on the application of the concepts, what we would now call lean concepts, to non-production environments. Three out of my four books are on that topic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do we apply the concepts to, you know, finance and accounting, sales and marketing, designing, you know, product development or any development really. And uh, that's what I've been doing for a long time now. <laughs> Excellent. Unlike me, you sort of started off in management and got introduced to this and have been in the quality and productivity sciences of management for almost your entire career. I I started out oh, yeah. as a sale, right? And had to go three different industries. <laughs> so very interesting and, and a really deep background. And and maybe that's why you write such a good newsletter. I love following oh, your you. newsletter. I've been following it for a while now. And in April, you wrote about a topic that caught my eye, the science of management. And you reflected on your training as an engineer and you observed that there's principles or laws that explain how reality behaved and that some of them also apply to management of organizations. And, and I thought it was, it was really insightful. So before we drill into them, I thought maybe I would just cover an overview of the ones that you introduced and then we'll, we'll kind of dive into them. The first one you used as the example was Newton's first law of motion, right? An object, mm -hmm. uh, object at rest stays at rest. An object in motion stays in motion. The second one was second law of thermodynamics, right? That energy or order decreases without effort or work. 
And third, the, you introduce the idea of a system that feedback is necessary to keep results in the desired range. And then fourth was a, was a reference about learning in organizations. And that seemed to be more about the human mind than about a principle of physics, but we'll get into that. So these are fascinating topics. I promise you people in the audience who might think, oh my God, you're talking about physical properties. This isn't going to apply. How could this possibly apply? But it really, really does in a fascinating way. So Drew, let's start at the beginning. This first law of motion, an object at rest stays at rest. Tell us how that applies in the science of management. You know, I only chose four. I'm sure there's more, but those are the four that came to mind when I wrote the piece. But that particular one, it dawned on me as soon as I went back to school in 1990 for organizational behavioral science, because there was an expression they used, organizational inertia. And I'm like, oh, I know a little bit about inertia. (laughs) And uh, so it caught my attention early on that one. Organizational behavioral science folks have, have recognized the application of that theory for a long time now, at least decades. The second law of thermodynamics, that was something that sort of dawned on me as I was studying organizational behavioral sciences. And I've seen subsequently people also referring to it, entropy in particular, and not always applying it or citing it or referring to it properly. So for the last few years, has been in my mind thinking, you know, I need to write a little bit about this at some point, just to kind of clarify things, because again, I've seen people refer to it and not always correctly. So let's, um, let's take those two right there. As it applies to management, what does management have to do as a result of the law of inertia? Well, they just can't leave things be. You know, they've got to inject energy into any system, and an organization is a system, a closed system. We've seen evidence of that in, in any, pick a topic. You know, I think in the, in the newsletter, I referred to 5S. And I often hear organizations or leaders of organizations kind of complain that they can't sustain 5S. And I'll talk to them about, you know, what, do you, what is your sustained model? And they kind of look at me puzzled and, you know, maybe they do periodic audits or maybe they used to and they got away from them. Or maybe they did them, but they didn't really do them properly. They didn't engage people in participating in them. So it became like a police action when, they, when people did the 5S audits. And it's true, really, of any organizational change. You have to continue to follow up and uh, for, for various reasons, not just injecting energy, but really making sure new habits are formed. One of the other things I studied in the early 90s was habit forming. What does it take to create habits or overwrite existing habits? And that all takes effort. You know, it takes energy, <laughs> okay. uh, really on the part of leaders in particular. So you're saying that management needs to recognize that in order for things to change, they can't just issue a order or tell people what to do. They have to plan that it's not going, people aren't going to be able to keep it at that level or, or keep that change in place unless they have a plan that keeps it in place. What, what, right. kind, what would be an example of something that managers and executives would need to put in place to keep a change in motion? Well, in, in lean terminology, it's just go see. We always say, you know, go to the Gembas, as Toyota calls it. But you need to have a focus when you go see. So the focus could be on, are we sustaining 5S? You know, uh, and oh, by the way, I should involve people from the area in that observation. 
that go see activity and I can use it to reinforce the importance of it. I can use it to teach people more deeply of what that topic is and what it's not. And you can use, you know, pick again, pick a topic, you know, visual management, you know, leaders have to go and use the visual management. They got to go see how other people are using it if they want to sustain it over time. If they don't, it sends a message that, oh, you know, this isn't important or, you know, this is just a flavor of the month kind of thing uh, with a beginning and an end. And people will make assumptions that, oh, leaders don't find this important anymore, so we'll just stop it. In operational excellence and lean, there's this idea of standardized work, which a lot of salespeople just bristle, right? Uh, <laughs> in, fact, in fact, there's a lot of value of that in salespeople. But are you referring to something that managers have to do? Well, there'd be like some, something called management standard work. Like there's got to be some of the things that would be necessary to keep entropy from, you know, the, the order or the energy from declining. What would be involved there? So you, you bring up the topic of standard work. So that would be a, a focal point or a focus of a go-see of a manager. They should go see existing and observe being performed existing standard work in their area of responsibility with a particular focus on standard work that was recently changed is what I always suggest. So that's another topic for go-see. And all of the go-see activities as well as other activities make up the lean management system and a leader's personal commitment to that system should be documented, I believe, in what we call today leader standard work, which is just really a multitasking version of regular standard work. It's a leader's plan of how they're going to participate and support the lean management system on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. If I am the leader of a sales and marketing organization, and I'm interested in this idea of standard work and standard management work. And I want to try to figure out what that consists of and translate it into my world of selling, marketing, servicing customers. Is there a, a good, succinct description of what are the components of management standard work that I could use as a, a model to figure out how it applies to sales and marketing? There's a model. Matter of fact, I have a, a brief, I think a two-part YouTube series on the topic of what leader standard work is, what should be in it, and also, you know, how to go the process of creating it that, that I've cool. learned it is helpful. But it's really fundamentally, people have to recognize that what they do are processes. And that is not always apparent to people in the sales and marketing world. You know, they take great pride in the creative nature of what they do, the relation, the strong relationship management nature of what they do. And they don't always recognize process because the leader standard work is created, you know, it actually documents all the different activities or processes a leader is expected to be involved in. Just like standard work is for a particular activity or process. First and foremost, people have to recognize the processes they perform. And that's usually where I start. So, well, tell me what your processes are. And that's not always a, you know, a quick response to talk it through. We'll put the link to your video, your two-part video on management standard work in the, the show notes page for everyone. Out of curiosity, I ran across a book a few years ago by Jim Lancaster, The Work mm -hmm. of Management, A Daily Path to Sustainable Improvement. 
And I thought that was very well done because he talks about starting at a state where management was just kind of by walking around without a lot of forethought and planning to it and how his mind got changed by his experiences. And now he's able to improve the order and the productivity of his managers by design, by the way he goes through it. So I thought that was a possibly a good list. Are you familiar with that book? I'm familiar with Jim. (laughs) So he's the real deal. You know, his company, Lantech, his father was an early adopter of lean concepts. Matter of fact, they were written up in the original lean thinking book from Jim Womack and Dan Jones. Jim has taken over the business, the son, and he's a he's a deep system thinker. Great. He's got the whole he's the whole package and he's he's got the interpersonal skills. So it's a book I highly recommend uh, put out by the Lean Enterprise Institute. There was this third idea. So we have, you know, if if an object is an organization is in a certain state, it's in motion and it needs to change. You have to inject energy. And when you do inject the energy and change its direction or its momentum, you have to have a way to maintain it over time. Your third idea introduced the concept of a system, right? Yeah. Um, And systems thinking. And so let's talk about that. And then you went from that to feedback. So tell us how those things apply to in in a management context. Yeah, I was actually introduced to the concept of a system thinking to organizations before I returned to my studies in the early 90s. And it was really Deming. Deming had a, uh, if everyone knows, Dr. Edwards Deming, you know, was the father of quality <laughs> management and all these principles were trying to encourage organizations to apply. And I was introduced to his concepts in, in the 1980s as part of my training at GE. And he, I don't know, in one of the readings, I believe there was a, a picture, a graphic of a system model which really kind of struck me. And his whole thing is, you know, organizations are breathing, living organisms that have to adapt. And, you know, they need inputs to tell them where they need to adapt. Things like voice of the customer, you know, and that's why the sales and marketing folks are so important to a a lean enterprise at some point. Right. (laughs) Then when I went to my, do my organizational behavioral studies, then it really sunk in. I was like, oh, okay, and I, I get this because I, we were introduced to system theory thinking, which was taking hold in the early 90s, uh, really late 80s, early 90s. And so systems thinking, the way I think about that, and I just bounce this off of you, I, I think about it, what it really is, is the law of cause and effect, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Entities behave according to their nature. And so you can describe those in the physical world by like the you know law of motion and thermodynamics, there's mathematical uh, that we've observed that entities behave in these ways that are predictable by mathematics. And so in an organization, there's cause and effect also. We call them systems, but really it's cascades of systems, right? Because the company exists in a market, the market exists in a political environment. Inside the company, there are functions and departments Inside the departments are the people and the roles that they play. And there's the, the systems of the software that dictates, you know, how they do their reporting. And then there's the training that they have and how they're compensated. All these things make it a very complex environment that often behaves in counterintuitive ways. So tell us about the requirement for feedback and why is it necessary? What does it enable us to do? It's even a little more fundamental than that. You have to have a plan, a standard, a normal condition, you know, whatever terminology you want to use, 
Mm-hmm. So that then you need sensors to tell you what the actual condition is to compare it to the two. So it's no different than your thermostat in your home, right? You set it, and then it's constantly measuring the actual ambient temperature and then adjusting accordingly. No different, but it starts with what is your standard or normal condition so it can have something to compare it to and then, and then adjust. And in lean terminology, that's this whole plan versus actual concept, which is prevalent throughout lean thinking. Again, I can use five S's as an example. There's visual standards, and when we go observe, are we sustaining? We can see things are out of place or things aren't being replenished like they should, you know, that kind of stuff. Only we can see those quickly uh, and easily only because we had standard conditions to begin with. You know, measurement systems of any form, you know, process measures that, you know, all lean enterprises all have an abundance of. You know, it's not just the chart and the data, but there, we always say you have to have some sort of standard or goal so we can see are we, are we hitting the standard or not. And if we're not, then that stimulates a conversation. In electronic and electrical systems, that conversation is more automated or can be automated. Again, much like your thermostat, it'll automatically adjust. The key is to have the right sensors (laughs) in your organization. And, you know, measures help with that. But, you know, we've got to be timely measures. You know, your thermostat is operating in real time. And too often, you know, metrics or outcome metrics that are very backwards looking. Uh, it's particularly true in sales and marketing, but it doesn't need to be uh, these days. But it's not just that. You know, there's quantitative, but there's also qualitative. So, you know, we talk strongly and have for decades about voice of the customer and what are your processes for voice of the customer? What are your customer touch points? And, you know, have those processes developed, standardized, so we can kind of keep feeding the feedback loop uh, to see where we need to to change or improve or even more strategically, you know, where's the market going? In sales and marketing and a lot of organizations, this term key performance indicator. And I have had companies I worked with and and clients as well to say, we're going to go look out in the market, in the industry and find the best key performance indicators and bring those best practices into our organization. And that never seems to work. (laughs) <laughs> Could you speak to why? I think a lot of it is uh, this lack of process thinking. Because if I don't see a process, I don't have to standardize on it. I don't have to measure it. These are obstacles I've encountered quite often working in the sales and marketing area. Okay. So how do we get people to see process and what they do? Yeah. That's I, often the first step. I remember being in a conversation a number of years ago some executives of a pretty well-known company were talking around a a big conference table and we were talking about Deming's management cycle, right? Plan, do, check, act, or plan, do, study, act. And one man made the observation, well, you know, a lot of the people in my team, they they just just don't want to do that. They're just not interested in that. And the comment came back a little bit later, that's a management problem. Right. If your employees don't want to do that, if they don't want to follow a process, they don't want to do PDCA, you have to find out why. And if you don't, uh, you're not going to be able to create improvement. Would you say that's fair? Oh, absolutely. So then why don't employees want to do process or PDCA? And what can managers and executives do to break through the barriers? 
So I don't know if you read the newsletter I wrote on psychology of learning. <laughs> that was another one that came out, I think, Ooh. earlier this year. Okay. But you know, the first thing you have to do for anyone that you're asking them to do something different, right? Measuring or just even seeing process, you, you have to give them a purpose. And so why? Because if people don't have a purpose for whatever you're asking them to do, then they're not going to even consider it. So leaders have to provide that purpose. So why do we need to see process in sales and marketing? What, what are the problems that we're having today that are not being met, maybe due to our lack of process uh, or early defined processes? Sometimes things are going okay and everyone believes it's going okay. And then leaders have to create a gap and say, well, okay, well, we have to strive to improve or reach this new goal. And here's why, you know, maybe something's going on in the, in the market and the competitive set that they're dealing with. A good example is, you know, and I'll use a specific sales and marketing one, you know, we were going to map out the process of bringing on board a new salesperson at a company. This was years ago. Before we mapped anything out and got the team assembled, I asked, you know, why? And, you know, they, they didn't, they weren't real clear, the VP of sales uh, and marketing, or I think it was this title. I said, you know, go, go gather some data, you know, high level data. And we talked about some, some possibilities and he came back and what he showed was that when they had a change in a salesperson in a region, he could show the economic impact of that, the negative economic impact of that in the transition. And it was millions of dollars wow. <laughs> uh, when you added it all up. It was like several hundred thousand dollar impact per salesperson. And these guys were in the commodity business and, you know, there's a lot of salespeople working in the retail industry. Once they, he had that, now he was really clear on what the motivation was, and then he could articulate that to others. And that's what we did when we kicked off the event. People were like, oh, we had no idea. It's like, no, no, you didn't. We always had to give purpose for anything we're asking people to do differently. And it could be, the purpose could be addressing existing problems, which are gaps, or we could, you know, leaders have to create a gap you know, forward-looking gap of higher-level performance, but have a reason why, too, not just because, oh, we got to get better. Right. Unfortunately, that's not enough for most people. Well, we, everyone wants to improve, right? <laughs> no, no, not actually. It's not the I way humans it. work. You know, they're comfortable in their known and familiar <laughs> environment, and they don't really want to change. I I'm sure a, you heard still... the expression um, comfort zone, right? People's yes. Comfort zone. And it's even more than comfort zone. I mean, this story leaps to mind. I had this sales executive in a professional association here in Atlanta, and he was lamenting about how hard it was for his sales team to find qualified prospects because there were so many of them. And so they were just hitting the phones, doing prospecting calls, and they expected them to do, you know, 75 or 100 phone calls a day. Mm -hmm. And so I've said, well, you know, there might be some scientific kind of experimental ways to make that work a lot easier. Would you be interested? Oh, sure. Great. So, you know, tell me about the experiments that you do. Oh, we do experiments all the time. Oh, that's really cool. cool. So like, what kind of data do you have? He said, excuse me? <laughs> yeah. yeah what, what kind of data? Do you have? Oh, well, you know, just the standard data that's in our CRM. Oh. Okay, so what kind of improvements have you done? Well, our guys are all doing experiments every day. 
on their, of course, it was on their own. It was completely unstructured. There's no baseline. There's no, you know, cause and effect thought process. They're just out working. And that's what he thought experiments were. So a lot of sales managers, they just, they don't even get the concept. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Certain terms, like an experiment, have a very different meaning in different people's minds. It's like the term problem. It can have very different <laughs> meanings in people's minds. Well, and, and that has led me down a path. Let me bounce this off of you also. Deming spoke, and, and much of his work was brilliant illustration of the power of understanding variation. And in sales and marketing, we have almost no data in most organizations. Well, we used to have almost no data. Now we got things people think are data and there's too much of it, right? But if you don't understand what that data means, how it ties to reality, if you don't have operational definitions, if you don't understand variation in terms of words and concepts, then your numbers are out of context. They don't mean anything. So you have to understand variation in your operational definitions first. So to the point you just said, people don't really, they have the word experiment. The word customer means different things. Oh, yes. Same company. So you have this system, you have these animals, wild animals, these human beings, right, that are in the organization, and you're trying to get them to improve. And as you pointed out, they have to have a purpose. So you as the executive need to, you can't just give them a purpose, right? You have to see what's important to them too, right? Well, it should be an inspirational purpose. So, you know, people should be able to relate to it and on a personal level and be able to see how they can affect that purpose. Yeah. I remember working in a sales training company and the inspirational purpose we were given, we're going to be the best senior level sales training organization in the market. It was a great purpose because we had a great process. We had great skills. But what does that mean, what you just said? Exactly. What does it mean? What do we do differently? What What is is great? What are the executives going to do differently? You know, it was like the same guys, our managers would go around and and interview each of the sales trainers and take our feedback in. And then, you know, the company needed to make some important decision. So they, they, they heard what we said. And then they announced their decision. It had nothing to do with anything that the guys told them. Hmm. It was like they, you know, they were kind of doing the dance, but not not walking. They, they were, what do you say, talking the talk, not walking the walk. Leaders have to understand what are the problems that are preventing the organiz- the people in the organization from doing, from improving. And mm-hmm. you have to go back and forth with them to make agreements about where we're going to prioritize and, and why we need you to try this for a while. I, I find that especially in sales organizations. I'm curious, have you seen that too? A lot of folks in the sales and marketing world, you know, they, they're very independent, very individualistic tend to be. And sometimes it's the nature of that, you know, just the traveling and things that they, that they often do. Sometimes they lose connection with the organization because of that. I've seen, I've seen that. And then couple that with, you know, this just lack of process thinking. It makes it for some formidable obstacles. But it can be overcome. You know, those obstacles can be overcome if, if we are properly motivated. <laughs> you know. Okay. And so now let's, let's wrap up here on the fourth reference, which was about learning in organization. Yeah. That struck me because it wasn't really a physical principle that applies. So speak to that a little bit. 
You know, the idea and what I referred to in the piece is artificial intelligence, which I studied as part of my computer engineering degree studies. Within AI, there was a thing called knowledge-based management. And I learned that in the early 90s. And actually, we had applied some of those concepts. I didn't know that's what they were called in the late 80s in GE in our aircraft engine business, where we're starting to kind of do like predictive maintenance. You could predict when you needed maintenance. This is different than preventative maintenance. Uh, again, conditions of the of the engine, the aircraft engine would change and you would know that, okay, I've got to do some maintenance on that. Well, that came from experience. People a lot smarter than I in our aircraft engine group, because I had a chance to work with them briefly on this project, was they were d- developing software, which was drawing on those experiences. That's kind of where I saw it. But then when I learned about AI in particular, in school a little bit. Actually, actually, it was around the same time now that I think of it. I was like, oh, okay, I get this. And then when I went to study, you know, what, what does it take for people to learn and develop habit and skills? That's when I started realizing, okay, this is all part and parcel of the same concept. This is not physics per se, but, you know, control systems isn't physics really either. It's about, you know, taking information and reusing that uh, whether you can infer from it or just, you know, set up some simple rules that people can follow. It, it's all part of that. And there was a great book. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it, even though it's about 30 years old now, which is Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline, The Art yeah. and Practice of the Learning Organization. It was way ahead of its time. When I read that in 1990, um, I was like, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> Your example of the sales and marketing, oh, we do lots of experiments. But we're not learning because we're not doing it in a scientific way. We're not capturing that learning for reuse. So that's just people off on their own winging it, which is not really good learning. Right. Uh, and it's so, you have unarticulated assumption that sales is about what salespeople do. It's way more than that. Right. The sales process doesn't start when the customer calls a salesperson. The sales process starts by whatever caused the customer to call the salesperson. Right. You know, the, the market awareness and, and today in particular, customer prospects don't want to hear from salespeople. They want to do stuff that's going to help them solve problems. So and they're looking on the Internet. So if your company doesn't have the right kinds of offers and assistance, the salespeople, their job's getting tougher and tougher, banging the phones, making calls. It, mm-hmm. And, and it's a, it, that's a sinking ship. But if you think about this, your example of the engine is a great one, I think, because they have sensors and they detect subtle changes in the vibrations of the behavior of the engine. And they've learned which ones are indicating that a bearing might be going bad or, you know, the oil is losing its viscosity or whatever. So they can detect that preventative maintenance needs to happen in organizations which are filled with physical systems, machines and software and human systems, which have hearts and minds, right? Free will. We need to capture our learning in a manner that those hearts and minds can use it. In sales organizations, if you have properly defined your operational definitions of what makes a good prospect, it presents an opportunity to detect changes in the quality of the input of prospects to the sales process which gives you a, a signal long before the market turns, right? Or a recession happens. So instead of your company floating along and 
when the tide comes in, we do great. And when there's a recession, we do bad and you're helpless. You have some forewarning. You have some ability to, to do countermeasures, but that's at a high systemic level. And it requires these people in the organization, just like in the manufacturing side, to have a clear shared understanding of the causes and the effects and what's value and what's waste so that senior executives can see signals that actually tie down to observable reality. You know, the example you just gave where, let's say you, you know, you found what makes for a good prospect. And I had not for whatever reason, you know, I'm a slow learner, I'm new to my job. If we could, you know, take what you, what you learned and document that in some simple way and share that with others, we can have huge impact on ourselves and our organizations because people can get up to speed quicker. We talked about earlier about standard work, and I do a lot of lean in in, uh, office environments and other environments where it's more like knowledge workers. And I would always say, you know, sales and marketing people are knowledge workers, like engineers are knowledge workers. Uh, Even certain manufacturing uh, environments are knowledge workers. Well, what does knowledge worker means? It, it means, you know, what information do I need? Where do I get it? And what do I do with it? You know, in terms of what decisions or actions do I take? And if I can kind of standardize all of that, <laughs> I can transfer that to others, shorten their learning curves, improve their performance uh, in timely manners. I mean, it's that's the essence of knowledge reuse. The essence of a learning organization. The tools that are available to do what I'm describing, they're readily available. You mentioned CRM systems earlier. You know, the capability that's there is amazing if if we use it. You know, so I got to take some time to put some notes or something in it so you could reuse it later. Well, Maybe for that customer or we run some reports and things that show us trends or just having conversations of best practices. To have so-called best practices that actually are proven by data that shows the cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's like, and and I've said for years, CRM systems is software, but if you don't have the wetware, what goes on between people's ears lined up and organized, the software is not going to do you much good, at least in collecting data across a system. Now, software can encourage people to capture the right kind of information. Now we're back to the forethought and thinking of managers to identify what are the signals and what's the noise? What are the important things and how do we change the behavior and keep that energy from dissipating in the organization? So Drew, this has been a great conversation. It turned out exactly the way I hoped it would. <laughs> so thank you very much for being here and your, your great examples and your really authentic way of thinking about it and addressing it. If someone in the audience wants to start, you know, reading your newsletter or get a hold of you for a reason, how would they do that? You can go to my website and there's um, on the front page, I think the homepage, there's a place to sign up for the newsletter. Uh, as you know, I, I don't put them out regularly. It's just when the, the mood strikes me and I think I have something that, you know, to say that people might benefit from. So I might put out, you know, four or five a year at the most. But people are welcome to sign up for that and they can do it through the website. You mentioned also some videos I've been putting out on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. Um, people can sign up for those so they get notice of when something's been added. Uh, we mentioned earlier about leader standard work. I have a, a, a video I just put out on metrics and kind of the process of figuring out what 
how do you come up with metrics? Uh, not specific to sales and marketing, but any process. You know, how do you mm-hmm. kind of determine a set of metrics that you want to that you want to tr- start uh, outcome and process metrics? So, so that so, might be of interest too. So, yes. so what is the URL for your website? Just so the audience can keep uh, the letter CMA, the number four results dot com. CMA for Change Management Associates. Yeah. Number four. Results.com. Results.com. Okay, cool. Drew, this has been great fun. Thank you for being here, and uh, I would look forward to having you again sometime. All right. Thank you for having me. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.